0: Church, welcome. It's so awesome to be with you this morning. That was such an amazing time of worship. And as I look around the room, as I look at the spotlights beaming into my face, that's kind of an old familiar feeling for all of the pastors on staff. As I look about the room and as everything is honing into completion, Um, I've been just amazed at the contractors who are working around the clock. The inner team at the church has been working tirelessly, and I know you all have been praying for us and supporting us the entire time. And as I look at our empty main space, our sanctuary, the one thing that strikes me is that it's missing you. I so miss just a handful of months ago when we were gathering in person together, when the presence of God felt thick and tangible, and I cannot wait to get there again. But something I've noticed happening in my own heart as I've been frantically working with the team to put the building together is just a handful of weeks ago, Pastor Greg taught through a passage from the second chapter of James, verses 12 through 13, and they say, "'So speak and act as those who are to be judged "'by the law of freedom.'" For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy, for mercy triumphs over judgment. Something that has struck me just over the last week, as I think about my own heart posture, both towards the Lord and towards people, as I realize I've been someone who has been living without mercy I've been a great busybody, I've been frantic, I've been stressed out, I've been tirelessly working to put the church back together with the team, but something I've realized in myself is I've become quite austere, cynical, critical, frustrated, and mercy would not be a word that most anyone would use to describe me. And all of these reflections reminded me of that great resounding passage from the prophet Isaiah, which says, the voice of the Lord says, cry out. And I asked him, what should I cry? So before we continue on, I, I want to ask both in regards to myself and to us as a church, what are we, the church, intended to cry in our generation? What does God intend the world to both see and hear in our faith? Great conviction overcame me this last week when I read the story of a young Christian woman from the early church. Her name was Perpetua. The writings about her are one of the oldest sets of literature we have from the early church. And she was a young 22-year-old woman who had just recently converted to Christianity in 203 AD. She was a new believer. She hadn't even been baptized yet. She was in Bible study, studying what it looked like to be a follower of Jesus and a part of the church, and the gospel message must have had a profound impact on her life. Why? She had a slave by the name of Felicity, and as the daughter of pagan parents, born into a pagan culture, we can imagine that her posture towards Felicity was not one of love and kindness originally. She saw her as a possession, perhaps someone to accomplish practical tasks around the house, but probably not as a person. And something history will tell us is when these two came to faith in Jesus, they almost immediately became best friends. So we can already see the profound effect God's love and mercy had on the life of Perpetua. But before very long, the Roman authorities were launching what we could call an inquisition into the Christian church in her own city. Many believers were arrested and so were her and Felicity. And as they were arrested, they were dragged into prison and sentenced by the Roman authorities to martyrdom. They were going to die. And almost immediately before her death, just the night before, the Lord comes to Perpetua in a vision and transforms her perspective. I want us to remember that she's a young believer She probably had only read and heard a couple verses from what we now recognize as the familiar passages of Scripture which have changed our own lives. But as an early Christian, her experience of God was only about this much. She was just embarking on the journey. And so God comes to her in a vision and begins to speak a new truth of transformation A story is worth a thousand words, so I want to read it for us tonight. This is Perpetua's vision. The day before we were to fight with the beasts, I saw the following vision. In the vision, Pompanius the deacon, or the pastor, came to the prison gates and began to knock violently. I went out and opened the gate for him. He was dressed in an unbelted white tunic, wearing elaborate sandals. He said to me, Perpetua, come, we're waiting for you. He then took my hand and we began to walk through a rough and broken country road. At last we came to the amphitheater out of breath and he led me to the very center of the arena. Then he told me, do not be afraid. I and the other believers are here struggling with you. And then he disappeared. I looked at the enormous crowd full of my persecutors in astonishment. I was surprised that no beast were loosed on me for I knew I was condemned to die at the hands of wild beasts. Then out came this great man, a dark figure, an Egyptian, who stood against me, a vicious appearance, together with his assistants, to fight me. There also came up to me some young men to be my assistants. My clothes were torn for me, and suddenly I realized I was a man within this vision. Then I saw the Egyptian, this dark figure on the other side, rolling in the dust. Next there came forth a man of marvelous stature, Perpetua's later vision will tell us that this is Jesus Christ, such that he rose above the top of the amphitheater. He was clad in a beltless purple tunic with two stripes, one on either side, running down the middle of his chest. He wore sandals that were marvelously made of gold and silver, and he carried a wand like that of an athletic trainer and a green branch on which there were two golden apples. He commanded the crowd to be silent and says, If this dark figure, if this Egyptian defeats her, he will slay her with the sword. But if she defeats him, she will receive this branch and the crown of life. Then he withdrew. We drew close to one another and began to let our fists fly. My opponent tried to get a hold of my feet, but I kept striking him in the face with the heels of my own feet. Then I was raised in the air, and I noticed I was not even touching the ground. Then there was a lull, and I put my two hands together, linking the fingers of one hand with the other, and I got hold of his head. He fell to the ground, and my foot was put upon his forehead. The crowd began to shout, and my assistants started singing psalms and worship songs. Then I walked up to the trainer and took the branch. He kissed me and said, "'Peace be with you, my daughter.'" I began to walk in triumph towards the gates of life. Then I awoke. I realized that it was not with men or wild animals that I would fight, but with the devil. But I knew that I would win the victory through the power of Jesus Christ within me. This is a young Christian. She's just embarking on her journey of faith. And as I was comprehending this vision in just my own time this week, I thought about, What would God communicate to someone who is about to die? What vision would they grant to this person? Now, if it were me writing this vision, I would give a vision of the glories of heaven. Perhaps I would give a vision of the later revival, which would be born out of Perpetua's testimony. There's all these ideas I can conjure up in myself that I would imagine this vision should be. But what strikes me most about the message of God to Perpetua in this moment is actually that she is given a utterly new perspective of her enemies. She'll say, I realized it was not with men or wild beasts that I was intended to fight, but with the devil. We can just imagine she's standing in the arena, looking out. She sees the judge who had condemned her to death. She sees the Roman soldiers who had perhaps done unspeakable things to her. And yet Jesus' word to her in this moment is this. You are not to view these human persons as your enemy. Instead, you are to view them as people whom God loves and desires to redeem. This isn't a vision that I could make up. God is doing something incredible here. And I think James outlines a couple practical principles that will allow us in our own day and our own time to adopt this posture of mercy towards the world. He'll say in chapter three, verses one through five, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes is perfect in speaking, able to keep the whole body, and check with a bridle. Let's stop there. I want to narrow our attention to two phrases within this passage. The first one is this. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The word for teacher here is didaskalos. It means instructor, exemplar, master, or doctor. The other phrase I want us to pay attention to is, we'll receive the greater decree or we'll be judged more strictly. It's lambano megas cremna." And if we look contextually at what James is doing here, he's not talking teachers will be judged by a higher degree of moral perfection. That's important. It's important that we live our lives according to the tenets of Scripture. But what James is actually tying this passage to is his statement in chapter 2. So speak and act as those who are judged by the law of freedom. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. For mercy triumphs over judgment. What is James telling us? As Christian leaders... As those who strive to see the kingdom break through into our world, we must become people who live a higher standard of mercy and compassion towards those around us. Now, the most immediate application of this passage would be to pastors, Christian leaders, Bible teachers, small group leaders all these various roles within the kingdom where we're charged with leading and teaching the people around us. But I believe James is calling us to a wider application. I believe he is saying, if you are someone who wants to both teach the world and show them what the kingdom of God is like, you must be a person of mercy and compassion. And when I think about my own life and my own frustrations and just the pithy, like unremarkable things that frustrate me from day to day. And I think about the example of St. Perpetua, who's staring at the men who have literally condemned her to die and is forgiving them. I realize how much I need to grow here. If my cry in our day and in our time is to be a cry of mercy, I have so much room to grow. James will go on to say, for all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes is perfect in speaking, able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. You see, I don't think James is talking about living moral perfection here. Why would he immediately say, we all make many mistakes? I think he's calling our attention to, within our own lives and within our own time, the natural human response is to react in judgment. When someone does ill to me, when someone hurts me, when I feel like someone in the world is oppressing me, the human thing to do is fight for justice. Mercy is supernatural. Mercy can only be given through the power of God. And I think James, more than anyone, realizes this, is the younger brother of Jesus who walked with Jesus, who talked to Jesus, who for a time thought Jesus was crazy, And later in his life, started following Jesus, but the book of Acts will tell us he still had major roads to go in alleviating his judgmentalism. I think James is speaking to us as an older Christian who is wise in the things of the kingdom, who is saying, if you want to see revival in your day and in your time, you must be a person of mercy. He'll go on to describe the power of our tongue and he'll say it's like a small spark that sets a forest ablaze. He'll say it's like a small rudder which is able to turn a very large ship. And I don't think that James is just coincidentally tying this passage, not many of you should be teachers for we're judged to a higher standard of mercy with the importance of the tongue. You see, the scriptures will say the power of life and death lives in our tongue. And I believe that James is saying in this passage for us tonight, "If you desire to be someone who brings revival to our world, if you strive to be someone who brings regeneration to the wider body of the church, if you want to see God's move in our, in our day and in our time and His presence tangibly explode into our world, you is a small subset of Christian leaders, people who are passionate about his presence must be willing to adopt the posture of mercy. And just like the tongue, this small bodily member which controls the wider body, you, us, Vintage City Church, the small member of the body, will begin to steer the posture of the entire church. And that is how we'll change our world. When I think about my own life and why I have so much difficulty adopting this posture of mercy, I think it's because I have such a tendency to lose hope. You see, mercy is a posture of stillness and hopefulness. Hopefulness in a God who is able to adjust our circumstances and bring true regeneration to our world. I think in moments of judgment, moments where we strive to see justice and vengeance done to people, the reason we seek that is because in our heart of hearts, I know this for myself, there's a small part of me that doubts God's power and God's authority over my life situations. I would never speak that, I would never intellectually believe that, but it's resting somewhere here in my heart. And I believe God has a message for us today. If you desire to be a person of mercy, you must first become a person of hope. So, how do we practically live that? How is James, the younger brother of Jesus, striving to teach us that this morning? You see, James walked with Jesus, he talked with Jesus, and he became consumed with this man who is the only perfect man and the only wise God in human form. And I think James is directing us, rather than being a people who seek moral perfection or just some kind of myth of spontaneity, will wake up one day and we will just be more merciful and compassionate, I think James is calling us to something much more intimate and much more practical. I believe James is inviting us each morning to seek the secret place with God and ask the Lord, is the only perfectly moral person in the history of the world and the only perfectly merciful person in the history of the world. How would you view this person who's hurting me now? What would you tell me to speak? How would you desire that I live towards this person? And rather than being a person who calls for God's judgment, I would begin to be a person who declares God's freedom over the world around me. I believe this is intended to be an adjustment to our posture towards our families, towards our friends, towards our political opponents, towards those in the church we don't agree with. I believe God is calling us to these practical moments of mercy where only God's supernatural vision and supernatural grace can redeem the broken situations in our life. This isn't easy. It takes a lot of surrender. It takes a lot of letting go of our own opinions and our own desires for the world. But I believe that this is how James is telling us this morning to live. I believe he's telling us if we wanna see revival in our day and in our time, we must become people of mercy and compassion, just like St. Perpetua. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is quite a task. I know for myself, this is a message of repentance. It's letting go of my own opinions and my own cynical attitudes and beginning to adopt your posture and your perspective towards the people around me. Lord, I pray that you would guide me with your love, that you would remind me every day of your own mercy when you said from the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Help that to be the motto of my own life, Help that to be the motto of our church that through that posture of mercy, we might begin to see heaven invade earth. You are so unspeakably good. We love you. We honor you. May your face shine upon us this week. Amen. Hey, I just want to remind you one more time, we are meeting in person next week, 8 a.m., 10 a.m. and noon. I cannot wait to see you in person. I love you. Let's be people of mercy in our world. See you next week.